You're listening to the Irish Times Inside Politics podcast. It's Wednesday, March the 22nd, and you're very welcome to the latest instalment of the weekly politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Joining me in studio today are Harry McGee from our political staff and Stephen Donnelly, the Fianna Fáil spokesperson on Brexit. Stephen, that's a sentence you w- I wouldn't have expected to utter 12 months ago, the Fianna Fáil spokesperson on Brexit. Well, every every well, word in that sentence well, I wouldn't you, you have You didn't think Brexit was going to happen here. Yeah. No, I didn't. No, no. As part of the part of the smug elites who thought yeah. it could never happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, there's, there's a lot to pick apart in that sentence, uh, but we'll focus on the Brexit first, actually, if you don't mind, because you are the party spokesperson on Brexit. There is no government minister on Brexit, so you don't exactly have a an opposite number. Do you think there should be a specific cabinet position? Yeah, I do. And I, I was ambiguous, I have to say, about the call myself until I ended up in the post. Um, before I ended up as spokesperson on Brexit, I certainly thought, you know, maybe a super junior, certainly someone at the cabinet table, maybe it doesn't have to be a full cabinet minister, but I've been working on Brexit for, I don't know, about six weeks or so now. And it is really complicated. And it is really high stakes stuff. It's economically complicated. It's politically complicated. It's socially complicated. Uh, the Taoiseach described it as the most important negotiations in our history as a free state or as an independent state. I agree. Um... And I absolutely believe a Brexit minister is required. I'll I'll give you a small example, right? So Enterprise Ireland have been given funding to hire about 30 people. They were given that in the last budget. The referendum happened about nine months ago. The Committee on Jobs and Enterprise launched a report recently. And Enterprise Ireland made the point, I believe, and I'm happy to be corrected, but if I heard correctly that they have their permission to hire these 30 people and yet haven't hired any of them yet. Now, none of the banks or the companies affected by this are are, are not hiring people. Now, Mary Mitchell O'Connor has a lot to do. It's a broad remit. Brexit is only one thing she's dealing with. A dedicated cabinet level Brexit minister would make sure that the the apparatus of the state is moving quickly enough. Board Bia, as we all know, the agri-food sector is in huge trouble. Board Bia, I think, has hired an extra two people. The IDA has been given permission to hire nine people globally, and I don't know how many of them they've they've hired so far. Um, so at a simply mechanical level of having a politician who is pushing and pushing and pushing and saying, how many people do you need? How many are you hiring? And representing that at the cabinet table, I think, is very important. The politics of it are really important too, right? We were told by the senior Fine Gael team that Enda Kenny is our guy. And in fairness to Enda Kenny, he is good at the relationships. There's no question about it. And I think he is well regarded in Europe. But they're throwing him under a bus now. So all of those relationships will be of no use. And so if you think about what's going to happen, the, the, the soundings are that the Taoiseach will stay on until about June. Uh, there then has to be a Fine Gael leadership battle. So let's assume they get someone in place in July, maybe August. Uh, they will have a cabinet reshuffle. It takes anyone about six months to get on top of a new brief. And so you're looking at, you know, next February, March, probably, before you have a government team that's been in situ long enough to be on top of their game. Um, the two-year period for the Brexit negotiations will be halfway through at that stage. So Does that mean you think Ed Kenny should, should remain as Taoiseach? 
no, listen, that's for that's for Fina Gael. That's 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 none of my business. But, but that's a logical consequence of what you've just said there. That at this kind of crucial, vital moment over the next twelve, twelve or eighteen months in the country's history, we'll have a government which won't be functioning properly. There is that, and and certainly another lo- logical consequence is put a Brexit minister in place and maybe a new Taoiseach when they come in, be it. Minister Coveney or Varadkar or whoever, uh, maybe maybe they'll consider that. But certainly having spent a, a quite a short amount of time in it and trying to get my head around all of the moving parts and the stakes that are Brexit for the Republican, for the North, uh, yes, I think we should. We now, should have a minute. As you said, there's, there's a huge amount in it and we don't have the time to go through all those moving parts uh, in in this particular podcast. It's a subject we'll doubtless be returning to. But what are the, what are the really urgent bits? Because obviously what's going to happen now is next week, the Article 50 gets triggered. Uh, a series of processes start, uh, sort of a very large machine starts turning and moving. And what if we were to prioritise, what are the things that we need to get going on quickest? There's, there's three big areas to this. There's the support that the state can give to uh, industry here, right? Protection of jobs, creation of jobs, new markets and so forth. There's a, there's a lot of work that needs to happen there that quite frankly is not happening. Um, there's the diplomatic effort, which is Ireland in the negotiations. The government are doing some good things there, but there's a lot more needs to be done. And I'll come back to one or two of those. And then there's the North and seeking special status for the North and critically what we mean by special status. On the first one, which is the support for Irish industry, the farming sector, the agri-food sector, the fisheries sector, the drink sector, tourism sector, manufacturing, electronics um, are massively exposed. And the response by the agencies of the state so far has been completely inadequate. There have been, there are some information bulletins, there's a website, there have been one or two regional meetings Enterprise Ireland told the Jobs Committee recently that they are engaged with all of their clients. I, I, I'm dealing with their clients in Wicklow, and I know they're not engaged with all of their clients. They don't have the, the amount of people they need. Um, the response from the government has been, but sure, we have the LEOs, the local enterprise offices. Like, the LEOs are there to help small startups. The LEOs are neither equipped nor funded nor tasked with preparing the enterprise sector for, for Brexit. So there's an awful lot more needs to be done in terms of su- direct support to businesses, to farmers, to, to, but to is, food But is, is it possible to define, I'll bring you in for a, in a second, Harry, um, is it possible to define what those supports should be or what are the appropriate supports? Well, we don't know what the hell the deal is going to be or what the relationship's going to be between the United Kingdom and the EU right now. We, we don't, and that could be no excuse for inaction, right? Governments have to manage in times of uncertainty all the time. We have a business sector out there. We have an agri-food sector out there. People are scared. They're looking at this big, complicated thing coming our way. They don't know what to do about it. Um, let me give you a, a small example from, from Wicklow. There's a manufacturing company in North Wicklow, did an awful lot of trade into the UK, found that the orders were falling and falling and falling for all the reasons we know, drops in sterling and uncertainty and so forth. So they went and looked at other markets around Europe, something they wouldn't have done without Brexit. And they found that the Netherlands, the construction industry in the Netherlands has the same sort of angles and standards that they have. They've gone to the Netherlands. They're being very successful there. And actually, their growth projections are going up because they were able to use Brexit as a trigger to go and do something else smart. Now, we should be engaging with everyone who's who's trading with the UK, holding meetings, introducing them to people like that, showing them how Enterprise Ireland can help. So that's just, that's just one example. The two big calls that I think are urgent on the negotiations are we should be asking very strongly that both sets of talks start at the same time. So the government is backing a call from Europe that says we will have the divorce talks 
And then if they're going well, we'll get into the future relationship talks. Ireland does not have time for that sort of play acting, which essentially is what it is. It's, it's smart negotiation, but not if your economy is, uh, is, is under threat. And the second thing we should be calling for immediately is for an early agreement from all sides on a transition period. Um, the view from Brussels, which again is being backed by the government, is we'll wait, we'll let the clock tick down. That puts more pressure on the United Kingdom and gets us you know, closer to a deal. But of course, if you're trading with Britain, that clock ticking down from two years to one year to six months to three months and no transitional period in place is incredibly damaging and incredibly scary. So there are two of the things we think the government needs to be doing differently. And critically, when Antishik and the Kenny goes to the, the European Council meeting at the end of April, we believe that the groundwork, the diplomatic groundwork should have been done ahead of time to, to make the other member states or help the, the other member states be more amenable to that and then he should call on that. I suppose, Harry, just for your broad reaction to that and in terms of what, what your view is of how well, how well geared the government is for dealing with all this now, well, one of the realities, isn't it, is it that the real politic of this is this is has a particular impact of us on us of all the remaining EU 27 countries, but there are bigger fish to fry here on, on, uh, on behalf of those countries, aren't there? And there's a certain amount of chicken is bound to be played and we can already see it being played in yeah. advance of the triggering of Ireland. 50. Absolutely, Hugh. We're standing on the shores and watching a massive storm coming in from way out in the ocean. And we know it's coming and we're not quite sure how we're going to batten down the hatches and prepare for it. We're looking at potentially uh, the biggest historical shifts uh, in terms of this island uh, in a century. Of course, we joined the EU in 1973, but what we joined then was a common market. It was a, a, an economic proposition back then. It wasn't uh, status changing. It didn't uh, go to the core of the constitution. But since then, and our also, relationship... Just to say, we also joined as a country which had was far more uh, glued into the, the larger UK and de- economy independent on it at the time. In other words, independence was not... Independence with a capital I in many ways. Absolutely, we jumped ones. in together. Our fate Sterling was, was linked to our... Inex- our inextricably so linked um, with, with the EU. And since then, almost by osmosis, that, that our relationship has deepened uh, through Maastricht in 1986 and onto the Nice treaties and the Lisbon treaties and the other treaties uh, that has uh, made Europe a more central part uh, of our constitutional framework. So what we're looking at here is we're looking at new relationships uh, that um, we haven't seen uh, the like of. In a century, we'll have to forge a new relationship uh, with Britain. We'll have to forge a new relationship with the North. And we might have to forge a new relationship with uh, Scotland as well if the Scottish referendum on independence is successful last year. And as Stephen was, was pointing out in his uh, introductory remarks there, we're looking at, at uh, historic shifts that will have huge implications, not just for our economy, but also uh, for our society. So, uh, and as Stephen was saying, I mean, this process is going to take a long time. We're looking at a choreography after uh, Article 50 is triggered. Uh, we'll have probably have two summit meetings and we'll have the terms of a divorce settlement. We'll have a two-year period during which they'll be discussed. If there's agreement. If there is agreement, of course. That's and a Everything is caveated by, by, by ifs and buts. And then after that period has... Um, has ended and Britain has formally left the EU, then a new set of negotiations begin in relation to forming our future uh, relationship, the EU's future relationship uh, with uh, Britain. And so many questions are left hanging. Nobody knows, for example, what is going to be the fate of the customs union. Is Britain going to remain in the customs union? Or is it going to leave? Now, Theresa May has given an indication that Britain is going to leave. uh, But in her comments in March, she did kind of hint 
uh, that there might be room for negotiation there and that, that Britain might in some form stay in it. And of course, if Britain leaves the customs union, and uh, that's going to have huge uh, repercussions uh, for uh, the border that separates the 26 counties and the, the six. And that's something uh, that is uncertain at the moment and needs clarity. And nobody is in a position to give any form of clarity at present. Going back to uh, the uh, opening remarks of Stephen in relation to Enda Kenny and whether he should have appointed a Brexit minister of, or not. I think in some instances in politics, uh, the politics and the personal uh, become intertwined and inextricable from each other. And I think if Enda Kenny were to appoint a Brexit minister, uh, that would undermine his own status as Taoiseach and as leader of Fine Gael because his whole um, uh, sell to his parliamentary party in terms of his future has been his, his experience in Europe, his ability as a negotiator, the relationships that he has forged uh, with other uh, EU uh, uh, leaders over the course of 15 to 20 years. So if he were to seat a, a Brexit minister, he would in some sense be undermining his own argument. Okay, in well, relation well, well to possibly accept, accepting that uh, his successor should surely appoint a Brexit minister. I think there's a strong argument for it. I think if you look at Britain, for example, the first thing that Theresa May did when she became prime minister was she appointed a Brexit minister. Some people think that perhaps she wasn't uh, he wasn't the best uh, particular appointment to make. But, um, it was but seen as being very Machiavellian and cute at the time, wasn't it? It, it was, and it, it was seen as, as, as the, the clever move. But it, it's, it's going to be the issue that is going to dominate Irish political, social and constitutional life over the next couple of years. One of the things and it Stephen, does need a Stephen minister that, to look at it in, uh, specifically. S- Stephen, that strikes me about the current political climate, and it's not just a question of this issue, we look, look across the Atlantic and we see the same as well, is that it seems to be defined by uncertainty in so many ways. We have so little that the, this decision which has been made by our by our closest neighbours kind of throws that country into a, into a, a constitutional storm, as, as Harry puts it, mm. which is really unprecedented and Looking at the behaviour of the Boris Johnsons and uh, the D- uh, Davises and the Foxes, they don't seem to be in control of events in, in, in any meaningful way. And I wonder, you know, there's, there's been a long-standing problem with the European Union and issues of leadership and direction and so on. There's a sense of chaos out there. There is a sense of chaos. And it's a great question and it's a, it's a great observation because, of course, there is uncertainty. There's uncertainty in Ireland. We live in changing social political times in Ireland. Look at the Yes Equality referendum, an amazing triumph, but not one we would have got 15 years ago, right? And long may such triumphs continue, but they are they are changing times. Um, social media, the internet, Facebook, Twitter has changed communications and politics uh, in some very good ways and in some really sinister ways. I was reading a, a piece on artificial intelligence bots that were used by the Trump campaign that had terrify you. Some of the things that were self, self-learning self bots that start talking to you. You think you're talking to another person and they're feeding you uh, what you what, what you want to hear. But the, the, the macro, if we zoom right out, the, the big problem is that the socioeconomic model that Western Europe has been using since the Bretton Woods institutions, essentially, when capital was easier to move, capital and currencies began to float and so forth, it's not working. It's, it is socially unsustainable it is politically unsustainable it is it is in, it is economically unsustainable and it's environmentally unsustainable so that's the meta problem right why did the, the workers in the rust belt vote for trump because they have been failed by globalization globalization has been incredibly successful 
at increasing the total amount of wealth. The pie has got a lot bigger and globalisation has failed spectacularly in ensuring that there is a an ethical and good and decent distribution of the the the, the benefits of globalisation. Too many people have been left behind. So this, the same thing that got Trump elected, that same anti-establishment, the status quo is not working for me, is what Farage and the others tapped into in the UK. Now, yes, there is a bit of anti-EU sentiment there. There always has been. Uh, and it's, you know, the Tories have pushed it for years. UKIP jumped onto it and kind of grabbed it off them. The Tories then had to go try and out UKIP them. Uh, I was slightly horrified when the deputy leader of UKIP, after Prime Minister May's speech that she made some weeks back, uh, said she felt the Prime Minister was channeling her inner UKIP. And I thought, oh, wow, well, that's not a, that's not a good place for us to have ended up. But the meta problem is we are destroying, our, our economic model is destroying the environment. It is, it, is, it is creating so much inequality that eight men now have the same wealth as the combined 3.5 billion lower half. That's not sustainable. Like, ultimately, that ends in rebellion. Uh, in the past, kings got their heads chopped off when it kind of went, when it, when it went too far. And so the, the task, the challenge of our times is it's not just Brexit and Trump and Le Pen and Wilders and all of these the rise of extremism uh, on the right and on the left, they are manifestations of a socioeconomic system that needs some serious reworking. And I think the job of of Ireland, I think the job of the EU27 is to have a really hard look at itself and say this sort of fairly loose regulation neoliberal model which landed us in the 2008 crash it hasn't worked. It hasn't been pulled in properly. And on and unless we sort it out, there will be more Trumps and more Farages and more Le Pens. And we will end up, not to put too fine a point on it, in a pre-war era. And that really is the challenge. Well, that's, th- that's a very big picture, which you've painted there, and a very interesting one, absolutely. And it's a fairly fundamental <laughs> Ideological, it's a social democratic ideological analysis, I suppose, or a modern social democratic mm. ideological analysis of of the substructures of economy in the in in the twenty first century. But, but I but do it, it, I do wonder though. I mean, listening to that, you know, there's a touch of the Skibbereen Eagle about this, isn't it? We are observing these tectonic global shifts. Yeah. What effect is a? You're in a much bigger party now than you were. You used to be in a much smaller party. But yeah. what effect is 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 Fianna Fáil likely to have on that? And also, actually, just in terms of Europe, the European context as well, is Fianna Fáil in the right European grouping as being part of that? I mean, one of the reasons you said you joined the party was because you think it's moved back to its social democratic yeah. roots. But it's not in a social social democratic uh, party in the parliament, is no, it? No, it's, it's in a liberal. They've yeah. moved to the liberals. We, they have no MEP in parliament at present. They well, had indeed. one. But, but, but were, were to have one elected and active No, but he, he, want, he wanted to stay with... the. It, mm. it was in a slightly... Uh, in more than a slightly conservative group and Fianna Fáil decided it was going to move to the Liberal group, which it has moved to. Mm-hmm. But Brian Crowley resisted, and Brian Crowley, I think, remains outside the Parliamentary Party for, for the present. But one way or the other, it's it not in any of the parties of the in the parties of the, the centre left, for example. No, which is where your analysis it's is really Aldi. coming from. Yeah, which would be liberal uh, and and more centrist. But I I think the question: what, what can Fianna Fáil do? The question before that is: what can Ireland do? Right, um, And the best thing Ireland can do is be an exemplar to others, which we are in certain areas. Take foreign direct investment. 
we are, which is what I studied. My postgrad work was in that. And I was in a room full of students from all over the world. Now, Irish aid has a tiny budget. At the time, it was a bit over a billion. I think it's now down to about 700 million. It's tiny in, in world standards. But my colleagues working in the World Bank or in the IMF or in the, the, the various government bilaterals were able to point at Ireland and say, this is a country with all manner of problems and it's still contributing to global welfare and to the poorest and most vulnerable people in the world. And so you can be used as an exemplar. Like we look at Norway for education. We look at New Zealand for education. And I think that's what Ireland can be. So we can't solve the global socioeconomic De, you know, defunct model problem. We can't solve it for the EU 27 either, but we can solve it for Ireland. And therefore, what can Fianna Fáil do? Fianna in, in, in a way, we benefit from it, don't yeah. we? we ben- our, our, our policies in FDI benefit from the free movement of global capital and we benefit probably at other people's expense. We, we do, but you can continue to have reasonably free movements of global capital if you're sensible about how it's used. So, for example, under Fianna Gael, they invited in both good foreign money, the you know the Google, Facebook, Dell, Intel type, and the bad foreign money, the vulture funds, the speculative investment, which we know just causes they don't they don't seem to know the difference between good foreign money and bad foreign money. Um, so, what role could Fianna Fáil play? Fianna Fáil could play a role in the, the ambition is to lead the next government. The ambition is to take the country in a different direction to the way Fianna, Fianna Gael have brought it further and further and further to the right lower regulation, lower taxation, and therefore less money for public services. Fianna Fáil wants to change that direction and say, actually, we need a stable stable tax base. We need to invest in services and we need to get very serious about equality of opportunity in the country. That's what I think Fianna Fáil could do. Uh, that's why I have joined Fianna Fáil um, and therefore help make Ireland an exemplar for other countries to say, we cannot continue a socioeconomic model that just consolidates wealth in the hands of a tiny, tiny number of people and strips too many people of dignity and opportunity and prosperity. Harry, is that the Fianna Fáil you recognise? Well, Fianna Fáil has changed. And in fact, Fianna Fáil is probably the most um, uh, chameleonish of Irish political parties, its ability to change uh, to suit the times. So we've seen instances of that many times over the past 60 uh, or 70 years where Fianna Fáil has shifted to the right and to the left, uh, reflecting the times. It's a pragmatic party. Not an ideological party. Well, it is. It it does. I mean, what it it has... It it probably lost its ideology uh, in the noughties when it it got caught up in the Celtic Tiger fever and uh, suddenly everything was about low taxes. There was a very... Although that's ideological in itself, of course. Yeah, Yeah. but, but I mean, there was a very strong influence from the PDs at the time and Charlie McCreevy was Minister for Finance. I think they dominated Fianna Fáil thinking at the time. I think Bertie Ahern tried to re-steer Fianna Fáil after 2004 when with the famous Inch Donny strategy uh, where there was a shift to the left. But the shift to the left was more uh, perception rather than reality. I mean, when you looked at what they were actually doing uh, to reverse the changes that had been made in, in the early part of the century, they didn't really happen. And then we had the Can economic I just, come crash. In, just give yeah. one observation on that, which is if you look around the world at countries that become wealthy quite quickly, mm. what you find is a very significant increase in inequality. The, the, and elites get rich very, very quickly. Very interestingly, during the bubble, and by the way, I'm not defending the fiscal or economic policies of the bubble. However, the social side of that, um, very, very unusually, the equality 
increased as measured by the Gini coefficient. Very, very unusual for a, for a, a country that is, is seeing a boom for that to happen. Um, that equality rise, which was contrary to what one would normally expect, was due to social and, and economic phenophile policy. So I'm not defending the stuff oh, that, although that, another that way led of saying to the crash. that is that it was Bertie O'Hearn throwing money at every problem that came out, that came in his door. That, that could be a way of, of saying it. And I think it's been a pattern of all governments. I mean, I think the Fine Gael Labour government, I think we saw similar efforts being made. What happens is, if you look at the raw data from uh, Ireland, uh, you see... Uh, a huge dispersity in terms of income distribution. You see a lot of income inequality. And the way that we deal with it is that there are lots of social transfers. We probably have more social transfers than any uh, other economy in Europe. And that does a very effective job of balancing it out. So when you actually look at the Mm. gross figures, it always looks bad for Ireland. We look like we're more... Unequal than but, America, but, but, but that, after social but transfers, that in it does balance that. But surely has quite profound sort of economic, social, and political consequences, doesn't it? That if you have, I mean, in a way, what you're doing is subsidising. Uh, you're subsidising inequality. You're subsidising low wages in certain sectors by compensating for them in terms of transfers mm-hmm. through taxation and social welfare. It's not necessarily... The, would we not be better off, you know, with an economy which delivered decent jobs to everybody uh, without having to compensate for the fact that we have large numbers well, of people who aren't employed or who are very badly paid? I, yeah, I think it's a reaction to, to... I mean, it's not a reaction, but it's the response to FDI and to globalisation. Stephen was talking about globalisation, but globalisation and the kind of the inherent inequality that has come with globalisation... Uh, we have embraced it to a certain extent in terms of our FDI policy and in terms of us being uh, an open, competitive uh, market. And we have to embrace some of the aspects of globalisation and how we respond to it in terms of trying to uh, uh, create I, equality is by social transfers. I suppose the reality is, Stephen, and we're about to come to this subject at some point, is that the Ireland that we live in is an Ireland that was shaped by Fianna Fáil more, and the people who voted for Fianna Fáil, more than by any other any other political movement. And mm. now you've joined Fianna Fáil, and I'm not going to get into all this business. You've been through that. You've had your scourging of, about the things that you said about Fianna Fáil back in the past. I mean, that's, you know, I think that's all water under the bridge. But, mm. but I'm still unclear given what brought you into politics in the first place in in 2011 and what you were saying about what you hope to do, I'm still unclear about how you ended up here as your political home. Okay, well, well, I'll I'll tell you. So I got into politics in 2011 with no understanding of politics to the point that on my first day I got off the dart, walked up uh, Merrion Square and tried to go into the Museum of Natural History thinking it was the doll, right? So that's how much you I knew. You wouldn't have noticed any difference, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> More stuffed animals in one than the other, uh, maybe not. Right. So, so that's, that's, that's how, how little I knew about politics. And I went in with one very simple uh, view, which was, I love my country, my country's in trouble, I want to help. That was it. I had no idea how I was going to help, but I knew I wanted to stand up at a time of national crisis and do whatever I could. And that's what I tried to do. So um, my team and I worked very hard on the independent benches. As you both know, no matter how hard you work and how lucky you get, uh, there is a very limited amount you can do. If If your view is you want to help bring the country in a better direction and protect hundreds of thousands of people or millions of people being affected by economic crises and bad policy, then there is only so much you can do uh, as an independent. So I founded a party for reasons that I've never gone into because I think you just need to leave some things alone. It didn't work. Um, It was a, it was a, a decision that I took after an awful lot of consideration, 
But what I will say is it was impossible for me to get anything done where I was, right? So my reasons for being in politics were, were absent, sadly. And I say that with a lot of regret. So I went back to being an independent, but it was always the case that I would look to go into a party uh, because there's only so much you can do. And it, it's very difficult as a politician watching the people you care about, the people you, I represent in Wicklow and East Carla, but the people you care about around the country, your fellow citizens being damaged by bad policy and not really being able to do a damn thing about it other than stand up and say, well, Minister Noonan or well, Taoiseach, you really shouldn't have sold those people's mortgages or you shouldn't have brought in five regressive budgets in a row or whatever it is. It's very, very difficult to stand by as a, as a well-liked commentator and watch good people get hurt by bad ideology and bad policy. And so if you want to really make a difference, you've got to be in, sorry, for me, you've got to be in a party. So the question is, which party? And Fianna Fáil is the best fit politically, right? Micheál Martin and the, the, the Fianna Fáil team, as Harry said, have gone social democratic. Was the party always there? No, it wasn't. But that's where it is today. And it's, it, it's today that Would Labour not matters. have been a better fit? No, I don't think so Why at not? all. They I had, are the Social Democratic Party. Yeah. You know, I, I, in, in Irish political history. Yeah. I, I had just come out of, let's say, a, a, a team on the left that didn't work. And I, I imagine would have encountered and was told that I would have encountered a, a lot of the same. But Fianna Fáil was a better political fit because it is unashamedly pro-business and socially centre-left. So it fit. So I had six years in the chamber listening to Micheál Martin and the positions he advocated. I debated with him on the leaders' debate. Um, I worked very closely with people like Michael McGrath and the Finance Committee and was consistently impressed by those people and the positions that they advocated and found myself agreeing with a lot of them. So it was, it was an obvious political fit. And I have been impressed by the Fianna Fáil TDs that I worked with both in the last doll and in this doll. Is there a legacy there? Yes, there is. Do I stand over the things that I said? I do stand over the things that I said. And by the way, the most critical people I've heard of what happened are the Fianna Fáil TDs that I speak to. And we talk of ideology, and, and I think it's fair to say both Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael have moved over the last hundred years, right? But I think what is interesting, probably a better word is instinct. And actually, it was a senior Fianna Gael advisor um, who said this to me up in Glenties. I was talking to him and I said, I, I said, help me understand. I kept having a debate with Minister Noonan saying, would you please stop doing the, these things because you're hurting these families? And he'd say, no, 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 we, we, I'm paraphrasing, obviously. You know, we have to do it to, to, to save the bank. And I said, well, why, why do you want to save the bank, to protect the bank? He said, well, because they serve the people. And I said, but you're destroying the people. And I was asking this, this very senior uh, and experienced Fianna Gael guy, I said, hey, just help me to understand. And he said, and this is before I was, I, was, I was near Fianna Fáil, he said, the difference between Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael is instinct. And he said, actually, it goes back to the treaty. He said, the instincts of Fianna Gael are to protect the institution, right? Be it the state or the church or the bank or whatever it is, protect the institution. And he said, the instincts of Fianna Fáil are to protect the citizen. Now, this is a Fine Gael guy, so he, he wasn't, he wasn't criticising, but he said they're different and they, they, they both come with strengths and they both come with weaknesses. Taken too far in either direction, bad things can happen. But he said that's the difference. He said the instinct for Fianna Fáil is to protect the individual. 
and certainly my instinct over the last I'm six, sure six years. I'm sure would probably say that that's the, that that, 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 that ends up with with the kind of letasse moi approach yeah, of Charlie Hay and certain other certain other Fianna Fáil politicians. The yeah. guy, the, look, it was a, it was a, yeah. You're, no, you're right, and it was a Fianna Gael guy who was saying it, and he and he wasn't saying that one is good and one is bad. There are there are strengths and weaknesses to both. But he said he said at an instinct level, that's the difference between the two, and my instincts. Are less around but protecting surely, the institution. Sort of, and but more surely, one of the, the, surely one of the ironies there is that, that 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 those points that you were making to Michael Noonan and those policies which Michael Noonan was implementing in the years after after twenty eleven, there were policies which had largely been put in place by Brian Lenehan and Brian Cowan. Not the ones I was debating with them. Not on mortgage crisis. Not on selling people's mortgages. Not on regressive budgets. Like if you look, we talk about an, the, the instinct for equality versus the instinct for elitism. Um, Fianna Fáil had two post-crash budgets. And both of them, as analysed by the ESRI, were highly, highly progressive. Highly progressive. Fine Gael Labour had five budgets. All five of them, as confirmed by the ESRI, were regressive. Right? So that's what I was fighting Michael Noonan on. I was fighting him on the regressivity of budgets. I was fighting him on the fact that one in nine children in the country were beginning to live in absolute poverty. I was fighting him on selling family mortgages to vulture funds and we've seen we've seen what's happened from that. I was fighting him on not helping the negative equity generation trapped by double taxation and high childcare and so forth. So actually the things I was battling Fina Gale on, Michael McGrath and myself regularly were lined up on the same side on the on the finance committee. What about um I mean I did look uh before we did this podcast at some of the the criticism which you got on social media and you talked about the, the, the perils of social media a little bit earlier. And a lot of the criticisms, it seemed to me, of your decision to join the party were not so much necessarily about its economic approach um, as about issues such as uh, the Eighth Amendment and certain other issues of conscience and, you know, liberal versus conservative culture wars issues, I suppose, essentially. Do you take that on board at all and the fact that it's it's... Fianna Fáil is seen as a party of, rightly or wrongly, as a party of conservatism on those issues, of, as the most conservative major party on them. Yes, absolutely. And I am a, I am an outlier in there. I think it was Lisa Chambers, Billy Kelleher and myself voted in favour of Breed Smith's bill recently, uh, which would have adjusted the Protection of Life During Pregnancy bill. There is no question, uh, but, but that I'm an outlier there. There is... Uh, freedom to advocate. It is a conscience issue. So there's freedom to advocate uh, and freedom to vote as you will. I am certainly on that. The, the, the big issue now is repeal. It was, yes, equality. Now it's repeal. Um, as a member of the Dáil, I am much more effective in advocating for that within Fianna Fáil than from the independent benches. From the independent benches, I have one irrelevant vote and one largely irrelevant voice and I can say this is what I feel. Within Fianna Fáil, you can at least work with your colleagues and talk it through and, you know, see what can happen, see how you can influence people. So certainly in terms of being able to make more of a difference, uh, am I an outlier in terms of social conservatism? I am. I I, I am. But but I'm comfortable with that. And I spoke very clearly with Michal about this before I joined um, because I, you know, needed an assurance that I would be allowed to say what I wanted and recently put up a pretty explicit Facebook post on my position and I mean there would, I haven't heard a word on it from anyone in the party it's one of the, the, the I mean I'm only in so I'm only getting used to Fianna Fáil but there's there's an awful lot of freedom 
you know, I was never in a major party. I didn't quite know how this was going to work, and I'm still feeling my way through. But there is an awful lot of freedom in terms of in in in, in, ter- in terms of those issues and advocating as you will. Harry, okay, there's quite a few uh, issues there, some of which are very interesting. The first, the the, the um, role of the um, independent TD versus that of a, a party TD, and there is a place. I mean, for example, in Britain, I think there's only one uh, independent MP in the House of Parliament. That's Lady Herman. So we, we have a tradition of having independence here. But the difficulty with being an independent uh, until now, uh, mostly until now, has been the fact is that you're very good at identifying symptoms. But when it comes to kind of uh, applying a prognosis, it's a, it's a quite a different proposition. And they're very good at kind of criticising and uh, talking almost as a voice in the wilderness. But uh, as regards to being able to do uh, things to implement you, you change... You remain pure and unsullied by the, yeah. by the compromises of power. Yeah, without, yeah. Without, without having to do that. Now, that's changed a little bit in this um, government because we have a number of independent ministers and Stephen could have followed that course if he so wished. But being an independent minister is not the same as being a member of a party. When you're a member of a party, you're a member of a collective and you sometimes have to subdue your own instincts in favour of the majority instincts of the party. I think that's, that's a good thing because uh, we're talking about communities, we're talking about groups, uh, we're po- talking about people who are representing the will of society. And I think the, the, the party political system is a good one, stretching from the uh, AAA uh, People Before Profit Alliance uh, to uh, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. In terms of Fianna Fáil's instincts, yes, I think uh, Fianna Fáil traditionally was the party of the small farmer and the, the working class uh, uh, man and woman in Dublin, whereas Fine Gael, uh, uh, represented law and order and the big farmers and the kind of Dublin middle classes. And I think that has a kind of a modern iteration. It's probably expressed a little bit differently. But there are other uh, instincts of Fianna Fáil as well. It's a very populist party. Its first instinct is to become the, the party of government or the party that rules. And it will take some very um, mealy-mouthed populist measures in order to do so. I think water charges is a very good example of uh, Fianna Fáil resiling on a previous uh, commitment and I think that there will be times in the future where Stephen Donnelly will have to swallow hard uh, in order to reconcile his view with that of the party. Talking about progressive taxes, yes, the, the Fianna Fáil budgets uh, immediately after uh, the downturn were progressive but that's because of USC and USC was introduced and that was a completely, that was a scorched earth tax. It cost every piece of income across every group. And it was progressive in that the more you earned, uh, the more you paid. Mm. But a lot of people hate USC and want it repealed because they saw that almost as one of those things that can, broke can the balance. Well, mm. Can I just interject there slightly? Mm. Because I, I, I hear you. But on the one hand, you're saying Fianna Fáil is populist and every party has its uh, ability to be populist. There's no, there's no question about that. But on the other hand, you're saying they, you know, they took this deeply unpopular but highly progressive uh, decision. So, you know, is, is Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael and Labour and Sinn Féin and AAA and everyone else and the Democrats and the Tories and everybody else ca- capable of populism? Of course. Mm-hmm. Like when you are a politician and you rely on people liking you and people are screaming at you to do a certain thing and not do another thing, you wouldn't be human Mm-hmm. If the instinct wasn't to do it, which is why you need to, you need to as as much as you can go back to the evidence and say, well, what does the evidence tell us on the location of the children's hospital, on water charge, on whatever, on mm-hmm. on, on on whatever it is? I think that that's that's the power of the evidence is it can take some of those very human instincts away because you are in a you are in a popularity and show, but but, but but you do still have to have principles and the the lament, particularly from the left, but sometimes from the uh, political right as well about Irish politics has been you have these huge fuzzy inchoate parties that don't really stand for very much and just uh, as Harry says in the case well, of Fáil look to get their hands on the levers of power. We have a fuzzy inchoate parliament at the moment that that's yeah. incapable of taking any real decision because of the the the, 
the logistics and the mathematics of it. That's true. But look, can I respond to that, Hugh? Because you do hear it a lot, and I was probably guilty of it myself, uh, still am sometimes, you know, a curse on all their houses, and sure isn't Ireland an awful place run by awful Egypts and craggy Island and so forth. But actually the data doesn't back that up. We are one of the most prosperous, equal, well-educated nations on earth. The last time I checked, the United Nations had 211 countries listed. And in any uh, independent data set you look at, from the World Bank or the UN or anyone else, Ireland is always in the top 10 in terms of level of life expectancy, access to public services, equality, um, education, like, we, we have an awful habit of beating ourselves up and we must be self-critical and we must be able to put our hands up and learn from our mistakes. And please God, we've learned from the banking collapse and, and, and other issues and the atrocities we're now seeing through Tume and so forth, right? I mean, we have, a, we have some, some very, very dark parts to our history. But let's not forget, this is a phenomenal country. Like, I've lived in various countries and worked in various countries around the world. Big, rich, modern countries. I've lived in London and Boston and Washington and Sydney, and I've worked in the Middle East. And Ireland is an incredible place. And we are a small, damp, wet rock on the side of Europe with no easy-to-access gold or diamonds or, or, or oil. We've no land bridge to, our, to any of our trading partners. And yet we are one of the most progressive countries on earth. So this morass of centrist, moderate politics that it we delivers, have lived with. That's what you're saying. Well, look, we've, a, we've an awful long way to go, right? But by God, we should be very proud of some of the things we've achieved. On that unusually optimistic note for this podcast, we'll leave it there. Stephen Donnelly, thanks very much for coming in. Thanks also to Harry. And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks to our producer, Jennifer Ryan, and engineer, JJ Vernon. Remember that you can mail me at hlinehan at irishtimes.com or you can find me on Twitter at hlinehan. And if you are listening to the podcast, please do take a moment to review or rate it because it does help to get it out to a wider audience. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening.